0: You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Amen. You may be seated. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Dear Troy and Stephanie and Jessica and Bill, dear saints of God, you might think that after approximately 1,463 sermons, I would have said everything that there is to say by now. And I'm pretty sure that's actually the case, but... I don't think you guys have remembered it all. So that's what we'll do today. By way of reminder, I want to cover a few points. Now at this point, there's nine, nine points I want to cover, but I'm reserving the right to add more as we go through here. Point number one. The church is suffering a first article persecution. What does that mean? We remember that in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. And I think that there's never been a time in the history of the church that that, those first two chapters of the book of Genesis, are more important than they are now. The fact that God spoke and the world existed, the fact that the Lord in 24 hours, in six 24-hour days, built everything that we see now out of nothing by simply speaking His word, And that as the culmination of his creation, he created Adam and Eve and gave them to one another as husband and wife. There's never been a more important time in the history of the church that we know that and confess that with a degree of boldness. You want to remember that in the ancient church, the old martyrs, they got their heads cut off and they had to go and be burned at the stake and everything for confessing the second article of the creed. That Jesus is Lord. That was their confession for which they got killed. But the persecution and the pressure that we're feeling today in the church is chiefly because we confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So we're suffering persecution because we confess this first article of the creed. Because we confess creation against the against the, the worldview of evolution. Or because we confess that God ordered the world over and against the idea that everything's just random chance. Or because we confess that God invented marriage as a man and a woman against the free and tyrannical reign of the libido. Or because we confess that God made male and female instead of making them gender fluid. Or whatever it is. You see what I'm saying? When we confess the first article of the creed, when we confess Genesis 1 and 2, the church feels the pressure of it. So, by way of encouragement, I want to remind you that there is no more important time than today to remember the Garden of Eden. To remember the peace and joy that we had in the very beginning when God made our first parents in His image. And especially, not only that we confess the truth of Genesis 1 and 2, but that we remember the, the beauty of it. I was. I don't know, a couple of months ago maybe I made a I don't know one of these YouTube videos about creation and evolution and and I had a or about suffering or something and and there was an atheist who jumped on there. Oh, it was about I remember, it was about the five hundred the feeding of the five thousand, about how Jesus fed the five thousand. And a guy jumped on my case, he was he was busting my chops because he says, What about well Jesus fed the five thousand, but what about all the other people that Jesus didn't feed? What about them? And so I wrote back to him, and I said, "You know what? it sounds to me like it sounds to me like you think that everybody just should be fed bread from heaven." And in fact, it sounds to me like we shouldn't even have to work for it and that we should just live in a garden where we can just walk around and pick the fruits off the tree. and in fact, that's what all of us want because that 's what we were created for, this perfect existence in the presence of God. This, so to remember the beauty of this and to confess with boldness, with unashamed confidence that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And if it costs us our heads or we have to go be burned at the stake or whatever sort of martyrdom the devil wants for us for confessing this truth, then we go gladly knowing that these things are true. Point one. Point number two. Every temptation that we face in the church is a temptation away from God's word. The serpent found Eve in the garden and he came with one objective, to cause her to doubt what God had said. Do not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. I found this week, you guys could, you would just be kind of laughing at me as you watched my sort of sentimentalism all unfold all week you'd kind of shake your head in shame and amongst the sentimental things that happened is i found the first sermon that i ever preached it's not very good i thought well maybe i'll quote something from my very first sermon i just couldn't <laughs> i couldn't find anything except i did in this sermon quote from the large catechism so that's what i'll give you martin luther you can't go wrong Luther says this, talking about the third commandment in the large catechism, God's word is the treasure that sanctifies and makes holy all things. God's word is the treasure that sanctifies and makes holy all things. It's God's word that makes this day holy, the Sabbath day. It's God's word that makes this place holy, the sanctuary. It's God's word that makes you holy. The forgiveness of all of your sins and your home and your family and your imagination and your life. Now, the devil knows it. And he is in every way tempting you, tempting us to depart from God's word, to doubt God's word, to despise God's word, to forget about God's word, to become bored with God's word, to miss the wonder and the beauty of God's word. We must fight against the devil by treasuring and keeping the Lord's word. And when people have asked me the last few years, when they say, in fact, from the very beginning, people say, well, tell me about your church. Tell me about Hope Lutheran. And this is what I say every time. This is what I say. Hope loves the Word of God. Hope loves to hear it. Hope loves to learn it. Hope loves to open their Bibles. Hope loves to come to Bible class. I don't know any church that has as many people who come from from the service down to Bible class, to learn and rejoice in the Lord's Word. And God be praised and may it continue. If anything good has happened in this place in the last 13 years, and I think it has, it is because the Lord's Word was doing the work. It, the Word, is what sanctifies us. It's what makes us holy. It's what forgives our sins. And I'm leaving, but God's Word is not. I'm not going to pack up all the Bibles on Monday and take them with me. I might even leave a couple extra. (laughs) The Lord's Word remains. And that that is your treasure. In life and in death, your treasure is God's Word. It is where you find His wisdom. It is where you find His comfort. It is where He speaks His law and gives His gospel. It is where you hear His promise of eternal life. The Holy Spirit is in the Word. And the Holy Spirit brings us through the Word, Jesus, our Savior. So listen, God's Word is your treasure. God's Word is your hope. It is your future. And it is your life. The devil will always prowl around seeking for people to devour, and he will devour us by taking away the word or causing us to doubt the word. But the Lord remains forever. Point two, the devil attacks the word. Point three, this is a sort of academic point. Genesis 3.15 is the key that unlocks the Old Testament. I hope that I've preached more on Genesis 3.15 than any other text. Do you remember how it was? When Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they realized that they were naked and they hid from God. Hid in, the, they, they, they made fig leaves for themselves to cover their, the shame of their nakedness and then they heard the Lord God in the garden and they ran and hid in the bushes. Adam and Eve in the devil hiding there from God. Now this is the occasion of and I'm, I was kind of sad about this I realized, when I realized that in 13 years I've only written one really good joke. <laughs> but it's this one. <laughs> I'm going to tell it to you. I probably preached it last week, but it's the only one I know. It's when Adam and Eve were there, and Eve puts, remember this, when Eve puts on her, her, her leaves like this, and she comes out from behind the bushes and she says to Adam, uh, How do I look? These are my fall colors. See, that was pretty good. I should have written more. In fact, you, you see in the leaves a picture of every human religion, right? You see in, the, in, you see in those fig leaves the attempt to cover up our own shame and our own nakedness and, and to hide ourselves from God. It's, every, it's works righteousness. By our own efforts, as if we can, as if we can stand before God on the judgment day, just with, with, with fig leaves covering our sins. But it does, we know it doesn't work. We know, especially, it doesn't work because what happens? Adam and Eve hear the Lord in the, the the sound of the Lord in the garden, and they're afraid, and they run. And that running away from God is sin. And that running away from God, listen, that running away from God is death. That instead of hearing the sound of the Lord and running to Him, they hear the sound of the Lord and they run away from Him and they're hiding from God. But God finds them. He finds Adam and Eve. And He comes with an entirely different sermon. You remember the sermon that He preached before they ate. On the day that you eat of it, dying you will die. die." But now He finds them in the bushes and He says... I will die too. He turns to the serpent and he preaches this sermon, this riddle. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will crush his heel, he will crush your head. This text, Genesis 3.15, this first gospel preaching is the key that unlocks the Bible, most especially unlocks the Old Testament. It's the promise of the birth of a man who will also be God, who will be killed temporarily, and in that death will destroy the devil and everything that belongs to him. The Bible and all of the history of the earth is an unfolding of that ancient promise. That promise of Jesus. True God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, and true man born of the Virgin Mary, who's our Lord, who's redeemed us from us lost and condemned creature from sin and death and the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. That he, the seed of the woman, has purchased and won us that we belong to him by his crucifixion and by his resurrection. Now there's something more here in this text, Genesis 3.15. I want you to meditate on this mystery that when God preached the first gospel, He was not preaching to Adam and Eve. He was preaching to the devil, to the serpent, to the dragon. And that hammers this point home, that your salvation is the devil's defeat. Or to say it another way, the devil's defeat is your salvation. They are not two different things. They are the same. And from that moment on, from the promise in the garden until the last day when Jesus returns again, that is the preaching that brings us life, that the seed of the woman has died in our place to destroy the devil. The devil is destroyed for you. Point three. Genesis 3.15 is the key that unlocks the Old Testament. Point four. The Old Testament is a book about Justification. Remember what happened immediately after God... This is an amazing thing. Immediately after God preaches this sermon, Genesis 3.15, and he says, and he, and he says that the, my, my son, the seed of the woman, is going to crush the head of the devil. And then the Lord goes and he takes an animal and he slaughters the animal and he takes the hide of the animal, the skin of the animal, and he wraps it around Eve and he wraps it around Adam To cover their nakedness, you just can imagine it, right? I mean, the ugly—you've seen uh, you've seen an animal be gutted before and skinned. It's not—I remember one time I took the sixth-grade boys from Peace with Christ, and we went down to LVR for a retreat, and I was staying in the cabin with them, and there was elk hunters that were staying in one of the other cabins, and they had an elk. And they had gutted, they were, they had strung up the elk and they were gutting and skinning the elk. And I, I I woke up at like 11 at night and they're working on this thing. So I woke up all these sixth grade boys and I, boys, come on. And we walked over in the dark to look at this. And I thought they were going to throw up. I'm sure they had nightmares if they went back to sleep that night. It's just, it's not a pretty sight. Now, you can imagine in the, here in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden where everything is beautiful, everything is alive, everything is holy, everything is perfect, and God takes the animal. Who knows what animal it is? Maybe it went extinct because there was only one of them or two of them. And God takes the animal and he kills it and he takes the skin, still warm, still with the blood, and it clings to the body of Adam and Eve covering their shame, covering their nakedness. Do you see? And they say, is this what it takes to cover our sin? And, and God would say to them, this is only the beginning. It's only the beginning of what it will take to cover your sin. And this is now the preaching that runs all the way through the Old Testament you remember the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark after the flood is he builds an ark and he sacrifices an animal, drains the blood, and kills it and burns it on the altar. Or when God was driving Abraham and Sarah all over the place, whenever he would end up in a place, he'd build an altar and he'd sacrifice an animal there. Or when the Lord rescued his people from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai and stood there and gave Moses pages and pages and pages of instructions of how the priests are supposed to kill the animals, drain the blood, burn the animal. And all of this is preaching. The Old Testament is full of blood. It's, it's full of preaching blood. And the blood of the animals was preaching the blood of Jesus. Now think, remember, whenever you bring an animal to the altar, like a perfect spotless lamb or it's perfect goat, or a dove, or whatever animal the people are bringing to the altar to shed its blood and to see it burned there on the pile of rocks, they were supposed to know, they would know, that this animal didn't do anything wrong. That they were the sinners. They were the ones who had broken God's law. They were the ones that deserved God's wrath and punishment. They were the ones that were unholy, and unclean, and unfit for God's holiness. They were the ones. And yet, and yet, the Lord was accepting the death of another in their place. And that is the preaching of the blood. That every sacrifice, every animal, every drop of blood spilt on every altar was preaching in one way or another the death of Jesus. In their place and in your place. That is what the Old Testament is about. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you search the Scriptures thinking that in them you have life, you don't realize that they are the ones that testify of me. Jesus said after he was raised, walking on the road to Emmaus, he was talking to them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to be raised before he was entered into his glory. And he began, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed them all the things that were promised of himself. Or Peter, most especially Peter, in Acts chapter 10 preaches this, that all the prophets proclaimed forgiveness In His name. That's what the Old Testament is about. Jesus. And it's what the New Testament is about as well. Jesus. Point five is this. All theology is summarized in this singular statement. Jesus is the Savior. Or to say the same thing another way, Jesus is Lord. All these sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing forward to the moment when John the Baptist on the Jordan River could lift up his hand and point to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is Christian preaching. I hope and pray that this has been my preaching. There's a sign here. I don't know if you guys have seen this sign. It's just, it's right here. And it says, Sir, we would see Jesus. This is right. Jesus, Jesus alone is our hope and our life and our peace and our joy and our salvation. And this is what it means to be a Christian. That we hear the voice of Jesus. That we hear his kindness. That we hear the forgiveness of all of our sins. And this is a summary of the scriptures, and it's a summary of the teaching of the Lord's church. Ruby Deal, you guys remember Ruby? She's waiting for us in heaven. Uh, Ruby, when her husband Jim died, Ruby would always say, Ruby Deal, she would always say, I'm a Jim of a deal. <laughs> you remember that? When Ruby's husband, Jim, died and went to heaven, with the memorial gifts, we got that cross there. And Ruby wanted to put a plaque on the base of the cross. And so we we went digging for, for weeks, in fact, to find the right one. And we finally, at last, found this quotation from Luther. You can see it there. It says, the cross alone is our theology. This is true. The cross alone is our theology. The cross alone is our self. The cross alone is our life and our peace in life. So that Christian doctrine can be summarized in this one sentence. Jesus is the Savior. And if Jesus is the Savior, it means that I need saving, and so do you. It means that you're a sinner. If Jesus is the Savior, it means that I cannot save myself, that he alone is the one who rescues and delivers us. If Jesus is the Savior, he must be both God and man. Man to suffer in our place and God so that that suffering can atone for our sins. If Jesus is the Savior, then He must be dead and raised. If Jesus is the Savior, then all who call upon Him will be saved. And if Jesus is the Savior, then then you are the saved. You are the forgiven. You are the children of God. Point five. That's that, all theology, is that Jesus is the Savior. Point six. A good conscience makes your food taste better. (laughs) Your Jesus is not content with his work on your behalf to be hidden. He wants it to be known. He wants you to know it. This is why Jesus sent forth his Holy Spirit, and this is why Jesus established his church. This is why Jesus established this church, Hope Lutheran Church, for this unique and particular purpose, to forgive sins. Jesus said it like this. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded you, and look, I will be with you until the very end of the age. You have to think, you remember that the disciples had these great hopes that Jesus was going to establish this messianic kingdom. That he was going to be exalted to temporal rule and authority. That he was going to sit on the throne of David and rule and reign. Even right before, uh, in fact, right after this, when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, the disciples asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is it time to throw off the Romans? Is it time to take up our swords? Is it time to conquer the world? Is it time to to establish an earthly kingdom where you're ruling and reigning all things, where you are in charge, where you're the king of the universe, where there's no more suffering, there's no more dying, there's no more war, there's no more poverty. After all, Jesus had told them, I have all authority. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Now, I wonder what would happen if the pres- if we had a voters meeting and Micah stood up in front of the voters and he says, okay, look, guys, someone gave us a gift. $72 billion. Huh. What do you want to do? <laughs> Micah's excited about that. He's hoping that it's true. <laughs> what do you want to do with it? Now, this is not, do you see what you start to, well, what could we do with all of this? How could we, and, and, and Jesus didn't say that we have all this money, we have all this treasure. He said more than that. He says, I have all authority, all of it. Anything I want to do, I can do. And what would we think Jesus is going to do with it? If you could do anything in the world, what would you do with it? I mean, bring it into war, bring it into poverty, bring it into sickness, bring it into, what, do you make everyone happy or something like this. That, maybe that's what we would do with all. of But look what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, baptize. Therefore, teach. It's not what you and I would do. But it's what Jesus, in his wisdom, knows is what's best. So that in that font, in that little crystal bowl, hidden under that little, that little bronze or whatever kind of metal that is, cap over there, in that bowl is all of the authority of Jesus. All of it. Every single bit of it. And in this pulpit and in that lectern and in your Bible and on that altar is all of the authority of Jesus, every single bit of it. His ruling and reigning is manifest in these things on earth. Because Jesus is not pleased with his work, his death, and his resurrection to not be known He wants to baptize you. He wants to adopt you as his own child. He wants to press his kindness, his death, and his resurrection. He wants to press it into your ears and into your hearts. And he wants to give you, more than anything else, he wants to give you a good conscience so that you would be set free from it. There's nothing more wonderful in the world than this. Remember how King David prayed in Psalm 32? He said, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old for my roaring all the day long. But then I confessed my sin unto the Lord. There's this little text in the book of Numbers. It's one of Luther's favorite texts. And it talks about how people will be afraid at the shaking of a leaf. That's what a bad conscience does to us. That we hear the slightest little thing and we're terrified by it. (laughs) I don't know if I should tell this story, but... Carrie tells a story about. (laughs) I'm going to do it. Carrie tells a story about when she was camping. I think she must have been in high school, and she was there in a tent, and and it was dark. But she woke up in the middle of the night, and there was a bear scratching the edge of the tent, like this. And she could she knew it was a bear because she could hear it breathing, and she could hear the sound of the scratching and she could hear its feet like this, and she laid there still like she was dead until the bear wandered off and left. Whew. So they went outside of the tent with their flashlights, and they went around and saw the tracks on the other side of the tent, the tracks of a raccoon. Laughter <laughs> Now you know that, right? That it, it's just when you're in the situation that the that the sound of it is so amplified, the fear of it is so loud, and it results in terror. That now this is an analogy. I think Carrie, I'm sure, had a great conscience, but the point is that when you have a bad conscience, that's how the whole world is to you. The smallest little thing seems like the wrath of God is pouring down from heaven. You get a you get two red lights in a row, and you're sure that God is condemning you. <laughs> When you have a bad conscience, the whole world is scary. The whole world is frightful. Everything loses its color. But when you have a good conscience, now everything comes back to life, and you are again free. To be unafraid. To live and to suffer and to die. A good conscience sets you free. And a good conscience comes from knowing this, that God is not mad at you. The whole world could hate you, but Jesus does not. The whole world could reject you, but Jesus does not. The whole world could condemn you, but Jesus does not. He loves you. He he even likes you. He delights in you. He is... He is pleased not only to call Himself your Savior, but also to call you His friend. And knowing that you are a friend of Jesus makes everything better. It even makes your coffee taste better. It makes your breakfast more satisfying. It makes your sleep nicer. And it gives you joy even in the saddest day. Point six. A good conscience makes your food taste better. Point seven. All right, we're getting down to it. Point seven. Every church is the whole church. There's a mystery in the Lord's Supper. When Jesus gives his body and his blood, there are people who mock that and they say, I don't know if people have asked you this before, but I've heard it lots of times. People will say to you, uh, who don't believe it's the body and the blood, they'll say, well, what part of Jesus did you eat today? Did you get his toe? His eyelash? What?" Well, now there's a mystery in the supper when we confess it rightly that, that Jesus gives to each one of us every Sunday his entire body. Not part of it. Because there is no parts. Jesus cannot be separated. Part here and part there, like he's divided his body up throughout the world. No, you you get the whole Jesus. And that mystery is also true of the church. You and I, Hope Lutheran Church, are not part of the church. You are the church. The whole church. All together, all of the gifts of God, all are right here. Jesus says it like this. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And this means that Hope Lutheran Church is not part of the church. You are the church. We are the church. We have all of the treasures of heaven. We have the fullness of Jesus and all of his gifts. We have the things that God has done from the very beginning to the very end all of the acts and works of God belong to you. All of the words and wisdom of God belong to you. All of the name of God and kingdom of God and all of these things belong to you. Now, the devil will tempt us in various different ways. We know this mostly as individuals. The devil comes to tempt us to unbelief, to pride and despair. And I think that the devil tempts congregations in the same way. So, He will come to tempt you. When I leave, the devil will come to tempt you. To pride or to despair. Pastor Wolf Mueller's leaving, everything's going to fall apart. That would be despair. Or pride. We're the greatest congregation the world has ever seen. (laughs) Or the third best or whatever, who knows. But listen, listen. You have Jesus. All of Him. And He has you. And He is your hope. Th- that, faith, that is your life. It's not pride and it's not despair. The righteous shall live by faith. So that you are the church. The whole, each church is the whole church. That's point, does someone remember where we were? Point seven. Two more, at least. (laughs) Point eight. We are all in this mess together. I hope you'll hear this. You all need each other. One of the privileges of being a pastor is being able to sit with you and hear your trouble. I want to tell you, the closest time that I ever, I think, came to having something like a vision, and it happened right right here, it was, a couple of years ago it must have been, and I was giving you all the Lord's body, and you came forward, and the Lyles were first, and I think this is when um, it it was looking like, Micah, you were going to deploy for a year, and you would be gone when Adam was going to be born. And that was weighing heavy, heavy on your hearts. And you were afraid. And you were here kneeling, and it's all, I, it was almost as if that whole, all of those fears and concerns were just dumped over the rail. And it's almost as if, almost as if I could see it. And in Maryland, you were next. And you were worried about one of the kids and what was going to happen in their marriage. And and again, it was was almost like, boom, it's just dumped over the rail. And Martha, you were next and your surgery was coming up. And it was, boom, right there again. And I thought to myself at this point, is this going to happen with everybody? And it did. One after another, as you... You all kneeled here at the rail. It was almost like I could see—I I could just see the things that you were worrying about, the things that we were praying for, the things that we were asking the Lord to intercede for, just being dumped over the rail and left there at the altar. About halfway through the distribution, it felt physically to me like I was walking through a swamp of all of your troubles. It's a mess up here one after another, after another, after another. And I had the sense that these now belong to Jesus. All these troubles, all of these sorrows, all of these hopes, all of these fears, they belong to Jesus. And one of the amazing things to me, and one of the great privileges of my life, is that I knew those things about you. That I knew the things that you're worried about. The things that you're thinking about. The things that you're mourning. I knew them. But one of the things that I've often thought, and I will tell you now today, and this is one of my hopes for you, is that I can look at you guys... And I I know what you're worried about, and I know what the person next to you is worried about, but I know that you guys haven't talked to each other about it. And I think to myself, almost every Sunday, oh, if you only knew, if you only knew the troubles that the person next to you was carrying, how much you could help one another, and how much you could serve one another, and bless one another, and comfort one another... You see, the devil wants us to think that we're alone in all of our troubles, that we're alone in our fear of death, that we're alone in our short tempers, that we're alone in the fear of our of our our children and our grandchildren not being baptized and believing in Jesus, that we're alone in our fear of poverty or rejection or loneliness or in our guilt and our shame and all of this. sort That we're just you know, no, we're in this together. All of us are sinners, all of us are dying, all of us are sick, all of us need one another. It is one of my hopes and one of my prayers that that one of the blessings of me leaving is this, that your Christian conversation and the comfort and the blessing that you have been to me, that this can be shared with the person that is sitting next to you. You'll say, well, I wanted to go tell pastor about that, but he left us. <laughs> so I'm going to tell the person next to me. And there is such a great store of Christian wisdom and patience and charity in this congregation that you will be blessed in those conversations. Here's how, here's how Paul says it, Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And Tune in for this. This is verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. Not neglecting the meeting together, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That word there, encourage one another, is the same word that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks from the Gospels. It's the word that Jesus uses for the name of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And it says that you are, our, that you are to be one another's encouragers. So care for each other. Love each other. Bless each other. Each each and every one of you, in one way or another, in many ways, most of you, each and every one of you have been an incredible blessing to me and to my family. And, it, and you can be that same blessing for each other. So point nine, well, that's a point eight. We're all in this mess together. <laughs> point nine, then. We are headed back to the garden. Revelation 21 and 22, when we get to the very end of the Bible, we're back in the garden. The river is flowing from the throne, and the tree of life is on each side, and the nations are eating the fruit, so that we see that all of it, all of the dying and rising of Jesus, and everything else that Jesus does in his church, all of it is to bring us back to paradise to the unending joys of His presence and His kindness. I remember one time when I was just a baby pastor, and I think it was one of our, like, thrivent reps or something like this, came to me and they said, Pastor Wolfmiller, what is your vision for Hope Lutheran Church? And I said, (laughs) somewhat cheekily, I said, well, I'm neither a prophet or a false prophet, so I don't have visions. (laughs) Ha ha! So they said, Well, come on, make something up. And I said, Okay, here's my vision for hope. My vision for hope is that we all die and go to heaven. And they said, Well, how does that help me sell insurance? <laughs> well, I don't know. There have been a lot of deaths. We've lost a lot of people. There's been a lot of deathbeds. I think, I, I don't, and again, I'm not, I, the math I can't do 100% accurately, but I think about 111 funerals. Now, when, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever told you guys this, but when I was thinking about being a pastor and thinking about going to seminary, the thing that intimidated me was not standing up and preaching. The thing that intimidated me the most was going to the hospital and being there when people died. <laughs> And I remember to kind of work through that early on, as I was your pastor, I was looking into the biblical doctrine of death. And I found this phrase in the old theologians, Mortis Dulcennomonia. That means the sweet names of death. And the old theologians would go through the Bible and they would list all of the ways that the Bible talked about death. To be gathered to the Father's. To depart in peace. Remember Nunc de minister. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. Or to sleep. This is Jesus' favorite. She's not dead. She's sleeping. Or gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. But I think that the sweetest The sweetest of all of the names of death in the Scripture is given to us in Revelation 22, verse 4. It says, They will see His face. You will see the face of Jesus. I remember a pastor friend of mine telling a story of the death of his father. And his father had gathered all his boys, and maybe I think they had one sister, so his boys and his daughter around the deathbed, and he told them this. He said to them, Listen, I intend to see you again. His last words, Dear saints, I intend to see you again. In fact, I intend to see you tomorrow morning helping me pack books. (laughs) (laughs) I intend to see you on the last day. Because there is a day coming soon when your Jesus will stand on the earth and He will call out your name and you will be raised from the dead and we will meet together in the air and we will stand before Him clothed in the radiant robes of His, uh, his righteousness His perfection. His holiness. We will stand with one another. And we will see Him. Face to face. And on that face, the face of Jesus, looking at you, will be a smile. He will say to you, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The peace of the Lord, which passes all understanding. The peace of the Lord, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.